I had this encounter with God where palpably I heard him say, there is nothing you can do to make me love you less. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile. Here on Premier Christian Radio, I'm Sam Howes, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That is the monthly publication that sponsors this show and makes it all possible. We've just launched a brand new website this past week. Check us out at premierchristianity.com. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking to David Oyelowo. David is a Hollywood actor best known for starring in Selma, playing Martin Luther King Jr. He's also been in A United Kingdom. He's also been in Spooks, the popular TV drama. And his latest film is Come Away. We're going to be talking a little bit about Come Away, in which he stars alongside Angelina Jolie and many others. But first in this interview, I wanted to delve into David's own personal faith story. And I discovered he's got a really interesting journey within Christianity of inheriting, I guess, his parents' faith. But then a really important moment in his own life where his faith became his own. So you're going to be hearing that story today. You'll also be finding out why he finds reading reviews of his own films so difficult. It's all coming up today in my conversation with David Oyelowo. Without any further ado, let's listen in. So, David, tell me a little bit about life growing up and where did Christian faith first come in the picture for you? Um, I was born in Oxford uh, in, the, in the UK and um, then we moved to London when I was about two and then uh, to Nigeria uh, from the age of six to 13. And then we moved back to the UK and um, it was at the age of 16 that, you know, we were attending a Baptist church in North London, uh, Islington, where I uh, where we lived and I was growing up. And I realized that my faith was very much um, tied to my parents faith. It wasn't something that was real for me. Um, I was sort of, I guess, more uh, a, a, a traditional Christian, a, 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 a familial Christian. I don't know. I, I, it was very much tied to my parents. Um, and um, I, made a, I made a decision. I remember the day it happened. I, I said, God, if you exist, I'm going to go to a different church because I feel like I'm only here because my parents are here. And you have three months to turn up for me. Wow. In a real way. Um, and I remember going to a Pentecostal church in Finsbury Park. It was the, the, one of the only other churches I was aware of in the, in near where I lived, uh, just off the Holloway Road in North London. And, um, it was incredibly raucous. It, it, very, very different from, uh, the, the church I had been attending with my parents. And I think the sheer energy of the the preaching and the music and the dancing and the praying um, caught my interest first. And then lo and behold, within those three months, um, I had this encounter with God where palpably I heard him say, there is nothing you can do to make me love you less. And that flew in the face of all of my preconceptions of who God was. I thought he was judgmental. I thought he wasn't very fun because all I wanted to be doing was having sex with girls and playing football on a Sunday instead of being at church. And um, the fact that the the love I felt from from God felt outside of the Bible and felt unconditional were things that really threw me. And... Um, yeah, and that that was the point beyond which it became uh, very real for me yeah. at the age of sixteen. It sounds like you had a quite a dramatic turnaround in, in even thinking about what it meant to be a Christian. I, I wanted to ask as well, how has faith changed since then? So obviously, you went from a Baptist background to a more Pentecostal one. How has cha- how has your faith changed, developed over time since that day when you were sixteen? Yeah, well, you know, like I say, I was I brought up in the Baptist church, then went to this Pentecostal church. Mostly since then, I've been at non-denominational churches, um, and and you know, I now live here in Los Angeles, and um, you know, uh, we go to a church. I guess that would be identified as Presbyterian, but you know, I don't even know what that means. Um, I just know I love Jesus and what He represents and the Bible, and I know when the word feels real, as opposed to 
am not. Um, and so, you, you know, when the Bible talks about going from faith to faith, that has very much been my experience, is that I have consistently had um, experiences and encounters and um, chapters in my life that have continued to build my faith. And those have not just been good things. You know, I've, I've over the last six years lost both, well, over the last three years, lost both of my parents, which um, was incredibly challenging. Uh, my dad within the last month, in fact. And, uh, you know, those tend to be the experiences that test your faith. And I have often found for me that they have brought me closer to the Lord, brought me closer to my faith, actually revealed more about how much I have indeed built my life on the rock that is Jesus yeah. Christ. And those are the moments that make me feel, oh, okay, this is, this is real. Yeah. This is me. And this is what we're doing. Absolutely. We're at that point, aren't we, is both in the UK and the US and around the world where actually death seems in some ways closer than ever. I mean, I imagine in your country as much as in the US, as much as here in the UK, there's this daily death toll going on of, of which really brings home the, the seriousness of life and death, doesn't it? How have you felt in, in the last month? Obviously, awful to, to lose your dad, but, but that sense in which, which death is actually very close. Do you think that does make you ask actually the, the big questions of life more than you would otherwise? That, that actually when people pass away, it, it makes you think, what is this world all about? And, and is there an afterlife? Have those questions been, I suppose, quite um, close to you in, in recent weeks? Well, I think as a Christian, those those questions are the ones you work through early on. You know, um, what is life? What is death? What is life after death? What am I here to do? How important is what I'm here to do in relation to, you know, uh, being with God in a state that is far more palatable than, than what is the case here? I think the thing that, that has, has been more on my mind is why, you know, why are we in the middle of this pandemic? What is this about? What is this here to teach us as humanity? What, what are we supposed to be doing with this moment as mm. Christians? Because I do, you know, the Bible is clear that in our weakness, he is strong. And I think we all have felt weak and challenged and perturbed and discombobulated. And where is God's strength in the middle of this? Um, and I will be honest with you and say, at times I have felt his strength and his presence palpably. And at times I have remained confused when you see um, innocent people, uh, not only the effects of the virus, but also the, the byproducts of it, the economic fallout of it, the, um, uh, you know, what's happening with, with kids who are not getting to see their friends and this awful syndrome of people dying alone, um, FaceTiming with their families, but there, there are things that have come from this that really, you know, from a faith perspective, have me scratching my head. Um, but, you know, I feel God within it and there are definitely answers I, I don't have yet. Mm. Uh, being an actor, of course, is something that so many people want to do and is so competitive. Were you always sure that you would make it? And I guess more more interestingly, how did you define making it back then? Do you define it differently now? I wonder. Um, well, as an actor, I, I think there are few who truly feel like they've made it um, because that's a very um, elastic statement you know what does making it look like is it being a critically acclaimed actor is it winning certain awards is it the fact that you just managed to have a career where you sustained yourself well you pay the bills through acting yeah through acting and acting alone you, you know there are so many different ways to define success as 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 an actor i definitely did not just assume i would make it my dad was actually incredibly against me doing it because there were very few indications and indicators that i would be successful especially as a black actor 
uh, in the UK, there were, there were, when I was growing up, there were very few black people, um, truly successful. I mean, Lenny Henry was kind of it. Um, um, and, and he was more of a comedian in a sense. Uh, so, um, no, it was definitely something I took for granted, but you know, I was raised to believe that hard work is half the work. Um, and, uh, and that was something I yeah. always knew I, I, I had. And so, you know, yeah. Do you feel almost, almost a sort of sense of responsibility now, given that you are taking on such huge roles and, and given that because of that, you are now a role model, as you say, to, to other young black people who want to be actors. Are you kind of mindful of that? You didn't really have those role models and yet you are now being a role model to others. Does that, does that play on your mind much? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely mindful of it. I try not to have it play on my mind because, um, you know, it's already a very high pressured profession, you know, to, to give a good performance for your films to hopefully reach a wide audience. Um, and so, you know, I, I basically take the philosophy that I do with, with my children, which is, um, do what I do, not just what I say. You know, I try to let my work do the talking. And if it appeals to people, if it reflects who I am and what I value, then hopefully those are things that people feel are worthy of emulation. But, you know, I don't sort of, lead with uh you know wanting to be a a role model because uh, you know i think that way madness lies absolutely i know your father experienced um a lot of racism in the 1960s and 70s in the uk did you experience that as a child as well um no i didn't uh, I, I, I didn't experience that as a child. I was very much insulated from it. In fact, when my dad told me those stories, they sort of felt very alien to me. The unfortunate thing is I have seen that behavior more prevalently, more recently than, um, when I was younger. You know, my, my, brother is a healthcare professional um in the UK and um in the wake of Brexit I remember him sending me a text saying he had just got off a train where people had been saying to him go back to where you came from which was the kind of thing my 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 dad experienced in the 70s I never experienced when I used to live in the UK and I just I remember doubting the 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 truth of what he was saying but I then heard it from more than just my brother and, you know, the rise of nationalism worldwide sort of also indicates that this is not an imagined thing. So it's really shocking to see something that I didn't experience as a kid Mm. have a resurgence now that I'm older and and definitely living here in America. It it is something that we we experience as well. Yes, it's it sounds almost slightly contradictory, but I suppose both things are true in that we've had this incredible worldwide movement of, of Black Lives Matter and and that's been going on for a long time, but particularly since the death of, of George Floyd and there seems to be more and more people waking up to those sorts of issues. At the same time, I guess what you're saying is, yes, that is happening, but also that the problems are also rising. It's it's not that one is cancelling out the other and both both are still a reality right now. I think they're rising, but I think they're also... Um being exposed more you know I, I, I look we wouldn't have had the movement we had this last summer if someone didn't train a camera on the murder of george floyd um you know social media definitely has its downsides in my opinion but one of the the greatest things about it has been its ability for us to keep governments, organizations, and individuals accountable on the basis of behavior that we can prove because you can show it to the world. Um, I mean, you know, maybe it's less known in the UK, but even this moment with this lady, Amy Cooper, who tried to weaponize the police against a black man in New York, in Central Park in New York, recently around about the the George Floyd incident as well. You know, that's the kind of incident that happens every day. And unless we saw it, 
the, the tendency is to sort of gaslight people and say, nah, come on, stop making excuses, pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, and I imagine my dad, when he talked about hot coffee being thrown at him or being spat at, you know, in the 70s, there would be people who would say, really? Um, but, uh, you know, if that was caught yeah. on film, it would be a different thing. And, and that, I think, is is what is really bringing it to mm-hmm. the fore right now. Absolutely. Earlier this year, the, the magazine, we, we put the phrase Black Lives Matter to Jesus on the front cover and and looked at this issue. And I wrote an editorial where I actually admitted to the attitudes you've just uh, explained. And I had to say, I've had wrong and sinful attitudes on this, and I've had a tendency to try and explain things away, and that was wrong. And, and we covered the issue, and, and the vast majority of feedback was very positive. Nevertheless, we did have some Christians get in touch and say, actually, yes, I want to be anti-racist. Yes, racism is wrong and a sin, but I can't, I can't bring myself to endorse the group Black Lives Matter. And this was a real sticking point for a lot of Christians who were saying to me, Black Lives Matter stand for some very unchristian stuff. I can't endorse this. What's your view on that? Do you have a response to, to Christians who, who, who might feel that way about that particular phrase or that particular organization? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's disingenuous and I think it's hypocritical. Um, Christians endorse several organizations, including the Labour Party, the Conservatives, uh, their, their football team that they love or what, you know, there are several, um, organizations and things that we participate, um, within in our lives that don't necessarily represent the totality of who we are as Christians, what we believe as Christians, and who we follow in the form of Jesus. And, you know, for me, it's less about the organization. It's more about that phrase, you know, Black Lives Matter. If you have a problem with that sentiment, then, um, you know, that in and of itself, I think, is something to really take a, a look at. You know, Black Lives Matter, the movement or the organization is not asking for anyone in the UK to subscribe to their newsletter or the minutiae of what they are trying to push as a political agenda. But black, the, the bulk of the people in the streets protesting with the phrase Black Lives Matter as their mantra are not members of an organization. You know, it's no different than marching and saying, give us the vote. You know, um, it, that in and of itself is not a question that should be up for debate mm-hmm. um, along, in my opinion, um, Christian lines. Mm-hmm. You know, Black Lives Matter is basically asking for fairness and asking for that phrase to be true. And the reason people are chanting it is because it isn't yet true. I'm aware you're now living in, in the US. What's been your perception of the American church on this? Do you think the American church in its broad sense are, are on the right side um, of this particular issue right now? No, I don't. I don't think the American church uh, are on the right side of this because I think the American church has allowed itself to be politicized. I think it has allowed itself to be, you know, broadly speaking, more aligned with one political party uh, than another. I I think it has made the mistake of being co-opted by uh, a political party. And I think that it has been used for division more than what the church was always there to do, which is to be a unifying um, element, a place of sanctuary, a place where all kinds of people can come. Jesus spent more time with the ostracized than the establishment. And I think the American church has allowed itself to become more establishment and make people who are on the margins of society feel more ostracized and more alienated. Um, so, you know, I've been fairly critical of the American church in relation and in reaction to Black Lives Matter because I think it's been a missed opportunity um, to be a place for people to go uh, and feel welcomed when partly what's being protested in the streets is the fact that African-Americans particularly, but other groups as well, feel um, alienated and abused by 
America from a, a sort of an establishment point of view, because you're talking about police brutality, you know, which is tied to government. Um, so, you know, I, I, um, I, I've been at times discouraged by, by the reaction of the, the broad church. Mm, yeah. But of course, that's, that's too much of a generalization. I think sure. the black church in America, of, for obvious reasons, has been, um, great in, in this time and making people feel, um, like there, there is a place for them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I should say pretty much every British Christian I know, me and you included, any experience we've had of the American church, I think would agree with your assessment in terms of politicization. I don't think that's a particularly controversial thing to say, that um, the American church is a lot more politicized in many ways. And certainly, as you say, many British Christians find that difficult. It works both ways, though. Are there things you've seen in the American church you actually think we in the UK, we could do with a bit more of that? Any positives that you'd you'd like us to take note of here in the UK? Yeah, I, you know, one of the great things about living in America is that by and large, Christians are not ashamed of their Christianity. I find, you know, in the UK, people will say, I'm a Christian too, (laughs) you know, and, and, and you know, um, I, I always find that very odd for me personally. It's the thing I'm most proud of, the thing I'm most elated about in my own life and and I never shy away from it in my work in conversation in you know because I I truly think it's a phenomenal thing and it's certainly a phenomenal part of my life I think uh, American Christians are are more more apt to to wear that on their sleeve than 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 yeah. we do in the UK Absolutely. Well, you've you've demonstrated the importance of faith already in this in this short time we've been talking in the amount you've opened up. And uh, obviously, as a journalist, I would say this, but I I wish every interviewee was as open as you've been, David, about your faith. Let's talk (laughs) about the new film. Uh, It's called Come Away. And it's a really fascinating concept because characters from Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan have been mashed together for this fantasy Mm -hmm. drama. And you play Jack Littleton. So tell me what what attracted you to that role? Well, you know, I grew up loving Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, particularly uh, growing up. The truth of the matter is I never really saw myself reflected in those stories. It didn't really bother me at the, at the time. I didn't know it was a thing I was lacking. It's not until I've gotten older and I have children of my own and I've really recognized just how important it is to see yourself reflected in stories, especially um, as a protagonist in a more central way, you know, it does shape your worldview about yourself to have the opportunity to see yourself, I hate to say it, but validated by being deemed worthy to be, have someone that looks like you, that is like you at the center of a narrative. And so, um, when I was approached with I Come Away, I recognized that, gosh, in playing the father, of Alice and Peter, these kids would look like me and look like my children and look like I did when I was 12. And, and, um, there's real power in that. There's, there's real cultural significance to that. And, you know, that combining the fact that I thought it was a really creative and imaginative thing to put these two fairy tales together just, just made it something I, I felt very drawn to. Mm. So give us a little bit of a behind the scenes glimpse, maybe something that happened on set that amused you or what it was like working with actors you hadn't met before. Tell us a little bit about what the filming process was was like. Well, partly um, um, why I was attracted to it is because I have four kids. Um, You know, I'd been a friend of Angelina Jolie's for a while. She has six kids. Um, we would have these play dates where all of our 10 kids would tear the place up. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, you know, when I approached her with the film, having joined it, I think that was one of the things that really attracted us to it was the fact that we were going to get to do these film, this film with a bunch of kids. And so from a behind the scenes point of view for myself and Angie, I think it was just really fun to get to be around these joy filled, open, funny, carefree kids. And so, you know, there are moments in the film that are quite stoic. 
um, because, you know, we play a, a certain kind of family in a, at a certain time in British history. But, you know, between takes, there were just, um, so, so, um, so many, um, so many fun moments. I think the funniest was probably the kids. Thankfully, this, this dance has sort of died down as a popular thing, but the kids trying to teach Angie and I to floss, uh, <laughs> was, was something I'm very glad no one has on camera. <laughs> Brilliant. That's, that's a shame. I'm sure we can dig it out somewhere. I'm sure, I'm sure someone somewhere will leak that footage. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> um, I noticed in previous films, you know, Selma, United Kingdom, when you've, you've done interviews, you've opened up about really what message a, a film like that portrays. Um, mm. Now, obviously, those those two films are very different to, to this one, to come away. Nevertheless, I'm aware that um, many people, certainly a lot of Christians, enjoy looking at pieces of media, enjoy looking at films from a kind of worldview perspective and say, actually, this isn't just a piece of entertainment, but arguably it's it's preaching a message, you know. And, and certainly in the films you've been involved in, those messages are, are often very, very positive. They're about love, about forgiveness, about unity. So what do you think are the, me- without giving away too much of the plot, without spoiling it for us, what are some of the messages you think come across in a film like Come Away, which is obviously intended for families to watch together and presumably for people to come away with a positive message? Yeah, you know, for me as a Christian, I, I don't really do films that don't have some kind of message to them, whether it's a message with a capital M or a, or a, or a small one. Um, but yeah, for me, uh, Come Away is really about how the imagination, magic, family and love can help us get through loss and challenging times. And uh, what you have with this family is a, a family who go through a very challenging time. Uh, the, the, the kind of challenging time that unfortunately a lot of families are going through right now when it comes to loss, when it comes to financial uncertainty, this family goes through that. And it's an origin story in the sense that you see how both Alice and Peter cope with this challenging time um, by by going into their imaginations and you see the birth of Neverland and Wonderland and how um, that is um, utilized to get them back to a, a, a place of healing. Um, and, you know, for me, what I hope is that families will be able to watch this film and it will be the jump off for a conversation about loss and how we cope with that and about the fact that you live long enough and that is inescapable. It's it's more about how you deal with it than whether indeed it's going to happen. Mm. How do you think about a film once it's done? Do you, once it's out as it is now, you know, do you watch reviews coming in? Are you um, interested in how it's, how it's received? Or, or is it more a case of that piece of work is now done? I'll move on and, and go to the next thing. Oh boy, I wish, I wish, I wish it was the latter. Um, you know, especially when it's films that I've produced or films that I hope will have a cultural resonance, as is the case with this. You know, this is the kind of film I wish had existed when I was 12. Um, and so you, you know, I will admit almost to an unhealthy degree, I, uh, I am, very aware of um, how it's being received or certainly very engaged with how it's being received because, you know, I work really, really hard to to give these films the best chance, whether it's making the film itself or producing the film or uh, doing the press for the film. So, you know, um, I'm also aware, you know, going back to what you asked earlier, um, I'm also aware that, Unfortunately for me, the stakes are higher um, when it comes to a film's success because I am a, a, a black creative who's been given a platform and I never want to give anyone an excuse not to give the next person who looks like me um, an opportunity to do what I'm getting to do. So, um, so yes, I, I am very engaged, um, probably more so than I should be, because at the end <laughs> of the day, there's there's just so much you can't control once you've sure. finished a piece of work. I mean, I guess 
any, any public figure has to deal with with praise and criticism. I mean, you could almost mm. ask, you can almost ask the question, which one's more dangerous? Um, criticism is is tough to hear, but then you know you don't want to believe your own hype either. How have how have you dealt with criticism over time? Is that something that's become a bit easier? You know, when people haven't liked your film or when people have been critical, it, has it been easier? Have you developed a thicker skin over time, um, or, or is it is it still really hard when people kind of don't get? this work that you put so much time and energy and effort into you develop a thicker skin but i think you you need mechanisms depending on your personality to deal with it um you know mine has been i i I am not good with reading reviews you know i i take them personally um you know and either way to be perfectly honest if they're really good um, you, you know, you're always at risk of having an inflated ego, but also if they're really good and you validate them, then you've got to validate the not so good ones. Um, and at the end of the day, what I do is very subjective. You know, I've watched films with my wife. She's loved it. I've not. And, and the other way around. And it's there are so many things that go into whether you like a piece of work or not. So. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie to you and say that I have a handle on, on how to, 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 to handle it because at the end of the day, the personality trait that enables you to be, I think, a good actor is to be emotionally sensitive and open. Um, because that ultimately I think is what people gravitate towards on screen. So you, it's very difficult to, to have that be a quality for your art and then turn it off in life. And so, you know, I, I muscle through um, is, is probably more the, the real answer. And thankfully in my career, I've had enough of both yes. to, to sort of find um, some balance. Well, I wanted to end by asking probably what is a difficult question because I'm sure there've been many, but what has been the highlight of your career so far? That is a tough question um, because thankfully I, I've had a few. Um, playing Henry VI at the Royal Shakespeare Company was huge for me um, because that was an opportunity the likes of which I did not anticipate would come my way. Um, Spooks uh, was huge, you know, that, that TV show that I did earlier on in my career and the reception it received and how far and wide around the world it went. Um, of course, playing Dr. King in Selma was was massive um for me career wise but just to play someone of that significance it was the one role that intersected with every aspect of my own personal life from a faith point of view from an activism point of view from an artistry point of view i formed and forged relationships on that film that i uh i know are going to go into the rest of my life so that was that was that was huge as well. So um, I'm, I'm thankful to be able to say I've had a few. Too many to choose from. It's wonderful to hear. David, thank you so much for speaking to me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. You're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hale speaking to David Oyelowo. Don't go anywhere. Part two is coming up next. Justin Briley has been talking to Mark Clark, pastor of the Village Church in Vancouver. He's talking about his conversion to Christianity through reading the Bible, why he gave up academic dreams to become a pastor, and his new book, The Problem of Jesus, answering a skeptic's challenges to the scandal of Jesus. That is coming up next here on Premier Christian Radio. Don't go anywhere. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. 
Well, welcome along to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. And today in this part of the show, Mark Clark, pastor of the Village Church in Vancouver, joins me. He's author of The Problem of God and most recently, The Problem of Jesus, answering skeptics' challenges to the person of Jesus. Uh, and uh, it's great to have you with us on the show today. Uh, thank you, Mark, for, for talking to me. Um, yeah, well, thanks for having me, brother. I was out in your church, believe it or not, about three years ago. And yeah. um, I just had such a great time, such lovely people. We unfortunately, you you were not around at that point. You know, you, you were traveling, but um, but I got to to speak at the church. Um, and um, I mean, tell us about the church because because it's it's multi site, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I know that everyone I was... wanted to hire you. By the time I got back, I almost <laughs> lost my job. So <laughs> that was the end of that. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so we we started out uh, 2010 in a little elementary school. We, well, actually, in my house, 16 people kind of got together. I was working at a church, and and the church very graciously said, "Yeah, why don't you why don't you take 30 total and try to start something 35 minutes up the road?" And so I was like, "Okay." So so we just started talking to people like Jesus. I was a skeptic, grew up in a skeptical home, so it was kind of geared towards skeptics, uh, trying to reach you know people in the greater Vancouver area and it started to kind of grow and grow. People started to meet Jesus and people started bringing their friends and, you know, life change started to happen, which is, you know, addictive and people started spreading the word and it got, you know, crazy. So anyway, it grew and grew. And so we had to go to a bigger site and go to multiple services and then two sites, three sites, you know, whatever. So, so yeah, we, we are multi-site now and we have um, sites in Vancouver, Calgary, Winnipeg, and Toronto. So, and then then of course, online stuff, um, so yeah, God's been doing a cool thing across Canada. So yeah. it's uh, cool to see, you know, people it, excited it, about Jesus. It's, it's very, very exciting. Um, how has COVID hit you guys though? Um, I mean, obviously it's different for different churches in different parts What's of the COVID? world. <laughs> Doesn't exist in Canada, apparently. <laughs> no, I don't know what you're talking about. I just, we just hang out in our house anyway, all the time. Um, yeah, man, it's, it's been crazy. So because we rent uh, our, all of our facilities as a church, we don't own a building yet. Um we uh we've been shut down since march we've not been able to get together everything shifted to online yeah all of our sites are like movie theaters and performing arts centers and so here we are 11 years old you know thousands of people and we're all just sitting in our houses you know waiting to go back to church kind of thing so but it's been um we shifted online and we've actually grown a bunch and the online audience you know and it's and it's become a little bit more of a global um scene you know you got people from all over the place who are like, they're like, well, we're, this is our church now. And they're coming to our classes and wanting to become members and giving and coming to community groups. And so it's shifted a bit of our attention where we're actually growing faster online than we are, you know, in the physical locations, you're like, oh yeah, we should probably spend some time and, and money actually Mm -hmm. using this as the tip of the spear of evangelism. So, Mm, yeah, I I guess I'm sure looking forward to being able to resume some kind of impact. Yeah. Oh man. You you don't get into this job to stare at a cameraman. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) As great as he is. The the good news is everyone's in the same boat and I've spoken to countless pastors who, who have, had to do the same job of navigating an entirely unprecedented unforeseen situation but um but but it's good to hear that that the church has nevertheless been been trying to use it as far as possible tell us about yourself though you were an adult convert weren't you yeah yeah tell tell us what kind of home you grew up in how and how you kind of eventually bumped into god and became a christian yeah. So, um, so my dad, uh, the way I kind of illustrate this, my dad was such an ardent atheist. I have an older brother, um, uh, uh, named Matthew. And he, he said, you know, I'll let, I'll let us spell his name. Uh, I'll let him call us Matthew, but he's got to, we got to spell it with one T because I don't want to spell it, you know, like the Bible. Uh, and then four years later, they had me and called me Mark. So clearly this guy had never picked up a Bible because uh, he's, he's trending in the wrong direction. Uh, and so he, uh, you know, this was the home, no Bible, no church, no prayer, no nothing. Um, and then uh, when I was, uh, my parents divorced and a bunch of stuff went down. And when I was uh, late high school, like, like grade 12, a uh, guy told me about Jesus and I just started investigating like from uh, and, I, and you know, of course I'm doing everything a guy does in high school with his life, you know? So I'm, I'm sitting out reading my Bible in front of my high school, smoking a pack of cigarettes, just trying <laughs> to learn. And then, and then gave my life to Jesus. And to be honest, I had this crazy, you know, conversion experience where he just got a hold of my life, totally transformed 
you know, not what I do, but what I want to do. And, uh, and I started just telling everybody about, I was like, well, everyone needs some. So I'd be sitting out guys would be hammered at the park. I'd be telling them about Jesus smoking my cigarettes. I'd be baptizing guys at two o'clock in the morning. And before I was ever baptized, I never walked to a church yet. You know, so this is bad. Let me get this straight, but are you saying you kind of had a conversion experience just from reading the Bible? Uh, Well, and a, and a guy telling me like bringing me to that point. Yeah. And then kind of discipling me a little bit wow. in the theology, but just at high school, as yeah, we yeah. walked around, wow. like there was wow. no, I had no formal leadership, I had, which might explain a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, I, di- I didn't have any kind of reverence for, for church mm. in that sense. I was just yeah. kind of whatever. So, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, met you. So I was, I went from the guy sitting in a garage smoking pot with his buddies, you know, whatever. And now three weeks later, I'm in the same garage telling them i mean i'm high because they're all smoking pot still but i'm telling them about jesus you know and so anyway that was that was my life so i started going to bible college and the rest is uh the rest is history so. yeah yeah well um fascinating backstory to this um mm-hmm. really enjoyed the book as well now look i'm gonna oh, thank you i'm gonna be honest with you him mark i i thought oh mark yeah he's um pastors a big church um he's pro- probably kind of done a kind of jesus for seekers kind of you know this is sort of the packaged version, if you know what I mean, of Jesus. Sure. And when I actually sat down and read the book, I thought, ah, no, this is like, this is like properly scholarly. Um, and I realized, of course, that you actually, at some point, you were even thinking of, of pursuing scholarship, weren't you? Um, yeah. Before you kind of went into church leadership. So, yeah. so th- this has kind of been the result of, I'm guessing, quite a lot of thinking, research, reading, um, and, uh, but it's done in a very accessible way, um, which, which is great. So, so what's, what's kind of, what's behind the book? Who's it for and what can people expect when they, when they read yeah. it? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I came from, uh, I, I moved out to Vancouver from Toronto to, to pursue a master's degree out here at Regent College. And, uh, and then I was going to come over to you guys and try to and do a PhD, you know? And so that was the plan. Um, and, uh, and then I, you know, in the, after my, I wrote my master's de- uh, degree, a master's thesis on Romans nine to 11, which of course, you know, there's, there's no shortage of things. Um, and, uh, and after I was done that, I was like, Hey, let's go PhD. And the Lord was like, no, I want you to plant this church. And, you know, I love, I love academic. I love sometimes, you know, being a pastor for me is like, I love footnotes. I love sitting in a library with me and words because they don't cheat on their wives, they don't, you know, they don't drink too much. They, they're not a gong show, you know? So, um, so I'm like, oh man, people, people are the worst. Why am I going <laughs> to pastor them? So anyway, so I gave up the scholarship dream um, and, uh, and did, you know, obviously continue in it, but try to bring it into the real world every yeah. week and watch it live in the yeah. lives of people. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, there's something about that, that you can't get away yeah. from once you yeah. see it start to really impact people's lives so i mean i, I was i was gonna ask though like you know when you move from the the scholarship you know sitting in the library and reading you know the victory of the son of god or whatever from end to mm-hmm. right you know a thousand plus pages and, and you're moving like to talking to someone who maybe just walked across the threshold of your church which is what you're doing a lot of the time with the village mm-hmm. church how how does that level of scholarship translate into what you actually say to someone who may not even really know anything about jesus yeah well what i found is obviously you know as a preacher uh you gotta you can't bring everybody into the uh, library with you you gotta go in yourself and then come out dust yourself off and tell them what you found and then tell it tell them what it has to do with the, the fact that they're they can't what are they thinking about right mm. like one of the things that people forget is especially in our culture is people aren't just wondering if christianity is true they're wondering whether it works does it work to change my marriage because my marriage is a gong show my kids are a gong show my budget's a gong show my work sucks i hate my boss that's what most people are dealing with and we get up and let's talk about you know and it's like well no you got to bring what you found in there and then mm. make live in their life and so um so anyway i have found that that you know if you do the hard work yourself and then bring it out and kind of show them the tip of the iceberg what they want to do is they first off there's they know that there's more underneath they can sense it when you're preaching you know, they, they, they're going, okay, he's got something here and he's given it to me. You know, he's given me kind of the, the tip. Um, and so, uh, and, and then what I found is, is people, once they start engaging those ideas, the, the big thing that happens is they start to go, oh, 
Uh, right. I never thought of it that way before. Mm-hmm. Oh, I never thought of it. So that's what scholarship has done for me. It's It's been able to kind of take an angle on something that maybe the regular Joe, even the regular Joe who grew up in church, maybe they never thought of this. And now let me spin it for them that way. And then let me unpack what it has to do with their life. So yeah. anyway, that's... And that's why, I mean, we're talking here about the problem of Jesus, which is subtitled Answering Skeptics' Challenges. But but I do get the sense that it's, it's written as much for Christians who want to kind of understand yeah. the person of Jesus more than perhaps they have. Because I think a lot of Christians grow up with a certain idealized church view of Jesus. Um, yes. And I think even, you know, in the opening chapters, you, 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 you know, you, you kind of ask some significant questions about um, how we got the Bible, how yeah. it represents the words of Jesus. Um, some uncomfortable things that some Christians won't have realized of how the Bible came together and how we understand the kind of genre of, of um, the, you know, the stories of Jesus' life, the, the gospels and so on. Yeah. So, so in a way you're, you're, um, you're kind of, I, I feel like you're you're asking Christians to reconsider the way they think about Jesus as a historical yeah. person as much as you're hoping totally. to answer some of the, the skeptical challenges too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I tried to, you know, I try, I try to look because of my background. Um, I tried to fuse together both those worlds. How do you write a book for skeptics and believers that are going to challenge the skeptic to say, you know, Jesus is the best idea in the marketplace of ideas. And then, the believer who thinks they know Jesus, uh, you know, like like in the introduction where I talk about, you know, the scandal, the confrontation, we pitch him as Mr. Rogers meets Tony Robbins or whatever. Right. And it's like, who would have killed that guy? <laughs> Nobody. You know, oftentimes we we make Jesus in our own image and he's nothing but some, you know, pithy sayings, nice little things he's talking about, telling heavenly, earthly stories with heavenly meanings, all this kind of, and it's like, who killed, he dies as a revolutionary against the empire. Mm. You know, he's Luke Skywalker, he's fighting the (laughs) empire. He's not, he's not walking around just talking about seeds and birds. I mean, and when he is, these are subversive stories. Yeah. This isn't just nice little stories Mm. to knit on a thing. Mm. This is like real, I got, I got to reframe God salvation, mm-hmm. Israel, the kingdom, yourself, joy. I'm redefining everything you mm-hmm. knew about everything. Uh, and you're going to either accept it or you're going to deny it. But yeah. there's not this middle of the road option of, well, Jesus is cool. He's a nice guy. He's a good leader. He's, you know, he's an archetype for sacrifice and love. And it's like, that's not a thing. Yeah. That, that's uh, okay. So moving from sort of maybe some of the, the, the unhelpful impressions that Christians sometimes pick up from, from Christian culture, even mm. about Jesus. What, what are the kind of the key objections you encounter from skeptics when it comes to, when you start to talk to them about Jesus? I mean, do you, do you find they also have suffer from a pretty, you know, poor uh, understanding yeah, I think, picture of Jesus? Yeah. I think both, I think y- you see a generation of people right now uh, who are quite, you know, are leaving the church. Right. And, they're leaving it sometimes for the same reason skeptics never came into it. And it's like, there's stuff that I don't like about the hypocrisy of the church or Christian nationalism or racism or sexuality, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, what I try to do is like, okay, let's clear away some of that. And actually let's just look at Jesus because don't reject Christianity based on Christians trying to and just fumbling uh to to try to follow jesus you gotta clear away that and look at jesus and that's what i'm trying to do in the book what if what if when we actually look at him you know he doesn't carry any of that it's christians trying to follow him and you know there's this um concept that i talk to my church about often because i deal with a lot of people who want to leave the church and i I think it was Souls and Nitzen gave an image years ago where he talked about if if I'm trying to find my way home, uh, and you, and I say where is it, and you point down a pathway, but I'm I'm walking along it drunkenly. It doesn't mean it's the wrong way. It just means I'm hammered, you know. <laughs> and so it's like don't reject the way because Christians are, you know, fumbling along the path, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I find that skeptics and Christians are denying Jesus 
based on stuff that has nothing to do with Jesus. It has to do with a, a bad version of Christianity that we've come up with after 2000 years of doing our best to figure this thing out. Yeah, and so yeah. let's clear that away and deal with, okay, what is he saying? What is he calling yeah. us to? Yeah. Well, you do, you do such a good job in the book of, of kind of dealing with the, the kind of historical case for Jesus um, and, and being very upfront about what the limitations are as well of what we can know, but the way we're meant to understand and the way this has been dealt with in the church mm-hmm. historically um but i suppose you know a lot of that leads me for, particularly for the skeptic to, to say okay so you've got say a a skeptic who's kind of intrigued by the person of jesus maybe they did grow up with some misconceptions and the book made you manage to clear some of those up but kind of what how much do you need to know how much kind of do you his, have to have kind of the historical evidence in place before you can kind of make um i suppose uh, uh, you know that that leap of faith um and I don't want to kind of, I, I don't like, you know, the dichotomy between faith and reason. I think they go together, as I'm sure you sure. do. But but nonetheless, there's a kind of, there's a point at which you have to say, I'm probably not going to have all the answers I want to everything, sure. but at which, but but I'm going to trust this. And 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 how how do you bring people to that point? What's the kind of thing that needs to happen to move it from just, I'm interested in the intellectual, historical Jesus to actually this could be a a a, a a real being who changes my life right yeah I, well i think you know uh as we've kind of been alluding to you know you got you got the how are we going to know anything about him it's going to be a gospels thing right so can we trust you know when i first became a christian it was like i just you know augustine said the bible is the face of god for us now and it's like i really encountered jesus in the scriptures and i was like this is this, but so now we got to trust those. So I remember, you know, um, I remember uh, reading, there was a parable in Luke I read one day. And then I was like, I thought I read that in Matthew. And I went over to Matthew and I read it and I compared these two parables and there was differences in them. And, and I, and I like, I lost my mind. I was like, Oh my gosh, these guys made this up because when he when Luke says it there's two masters and when this when Matthew said it there was one or there was three birds I forget the exact scenario but the seeds or the birds or the masters something was off and uh and I was like forget it and kind of you know and then I started you know and I talk about this in the book I started you know actually reading scholars that pointed out the fact that Jesus you gotta like don't throw away Christianity based on your terrible 21st century ideas about what uh, the gospel writer should be doing. This guy had a three-year ministry. So he's walking around Galilee telling these stories. He probably told them 250 times. If you had a tape recorder, you would have, you would have taped him doing the one with the two masters and one mm-hmm. took that one that he did on a Wednesday. And Luke took the one he later, you know what, this is, th- 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 we project all of these things. And I remember just, to be humble here. I, I, why am I projecting all my ideas about Christianity onto a text? These guys can, these guys can formulate uh, topics if they want, you know, you go to the gospel of Mark, all of his parables are in chapter four. We look, Oh my goodness. I guess Mark's doing a thing here. It's like, no, that's what they were allowed to do this. This was what the genre a first century biography that melded together, you know, Greco-Roman ideas and Jewish storytelling together in this thing where they were allowed to shift information around to make theological points. They were allowed to have all these things. So it it caused me to go, okay, I got to take a breather here and judge this genre based on its thing, not my thing, projecting it on. And I find that skeptics, once you explain things like that to them, um, a lot of the objections just kind of disappear, I find, at that point, because right was if the problem is, I, I think you're right, Mark. And I think the problem has been that the church has often held up a specific view of scripture that is, you know, it's easy then for a skeptic to shoot down because right. I'm just going to line up two passages and show that there's a, some kind of problem with that. Right. <laughs> and and it, but it, it wasn't ever a problem to start with because, you know, that those were not the you know, um, historic sort of the, what's the word, uh, genre rules that they were right. interested in at that point. Um, and, and I find a lot of those supposed contradictions things just, just go away the moment you realize there was this license to, 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 to deal with the text in that way. Now, of course yeah. the, the problem then for the, the skeptic is, well, 
is that shady you know is that like does that suggest they were just making stuff up basically right, if they were right. willing to to reorganize and you know um at their material and, and so on so where, where do you go with that i well, no because oh man okay so so remember i'm in the book where i talked about lewis and c.s lewis and he any uh and he says the all these german scholars you know are like oh this is just romance literature you know, these are just made up stories. And he, he's like, guys, I can't trust you because you're German scholars who've only spent all this time in your life dealing with the gospels. He's like, I've spent my whole life dealing with romance, you know, true mythology. Mm. And this ain't nothing like it. Mm. It's because you're too close to gospel study that I can't trust that you know, right. Because yeah, you've yeah. never read Beowulf in yeah, the original, yeah. you know, whatever. So, I think you know, I was watching. I've ever you get over there, um, the people versus OJ Simpson. Have you yeah. ever seen? Okay, yeah, I did watched you, that. Did, yeah, did you mm. watch it? Okay, yeah. So here's here's what hit me the other day. So when you watch the people versus OJ Simpson, of course, it's trying to tell the story about OJ and his trial in in '94 uh, is when he you know mm. uh, when the murders happened. Um, okay, so but th- the whole show opens. With the with the um, beating of Rodney King and the subsequent um, you know uh, protests riots, and, and, yep. and riots in L.A. in '92, and you're like, why are they why are they starting the show with this? And it's because they're trying to give context yeah. uh, politically, emotionally to the trial. It's saying, here's why this guy is going to end up being innocent in the end. Here's why jurors mm. are going to find him. Mm. You know, they're going to say he, he could get off Be- mm. because the seemingly disconnected thing was the context yeah. of this trial. And I find this is what the gospel writers are doing. They're constant. They're not just giving us information. They're giving us the meaning of the information they're giving us the context of it and that's why they can shift it around or do this or that like one of the one of the examples which obviously isn't that controversial but i talk about how you know in john 3:16 we have them all red letters and you know jesus of course says for god so loved the world you know in most of our bibles but there was no red letters in the original there was no quotation marks and most scholars actually think by the time that text is said that's just john's commentary on what jesus has just said well most people oh my goodness jesus didn't say for god so loved the world say no john's saying it you know so it's really understanding that they have the ability and flexibility to do these things that like you said now all some of the skepticism starts to go away and we start to look and go okay i gotta now just make i gotta trust these documents is my point coming back to your original question and if we trust the documents which I think we can based on archaeology and the leaders that they talk about and all the historical data that's been done on digging up coins that, you know, all of that. Um, Then we start to work backwards from, you know, things you talk about all the time, the resurrection and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And if that stuff starts to ring true, now I got to, I got to evaluate what are the real reasons I'm I'm rejecting this? Uh, What are the reasons behind the reasons? Uh, Is it because I'm, you know, you know, like I like to say to my church on Easter, you know, my church doubles in size on Easter <laughs> and uh, you know, cause a bunch of people show up uh, that their family invited. And I love to kind of, I love to challenge them a bit and say, look, here's the reason you're not going to come back here next week. Uh, because, you know, you came here, I'm glad you put your nice slacks on and you came cause grandma asked you to come and you're going to go back and eat ham or whatever this afternoon, whatever you do. And that's great. But here's the problem. Uh, the, the reason that you're not going to believe in Jesus today um, is, is not because you're smarter than everybody in this room. It's because you're a coward. <laughs> it's because you're afraid of what your coworker is going to say if you give your life to Jesus today, what your girlfriend's going to say, what your husband's going to say. That's why you won't believe. You want to hold on to your control in life. You want to hold on to what's comfortable for you and what you know and and what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is let's not all pretend skeptics are skeptics because they're just so much smarter than everybody else. There are reasons behind reasons. And I want to try to get at those and go, I'm not telling you this is what I'm just telling you at least do some evaluation on yourself and evaluate your real reasons why you might be rejecting this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's true. And, and I think 
the best skeptics are skeptical of their own skepticism in that sure. sense. And yeah. they're, they're willing to see that we're all, we all suffer from confirmation bias. We all have a worldview that we're not going to give up easily necessarily. And there's going to be, and, and I, I totally agree. I think what's often presented ostensibly as intellectual objections can often be being used as a, a sort of a mask for other kinds of actual, what the real objections often are um, underneath. But having said all that, you know, there's still a, you know, what we're inviting people to when they, we invite them to a relationship with Jesus is not a historical person exactly, is it? it? As much as we might want to show the historical foundations for this person, it is for something that is ultimately quite mysterious. So, yeah. and I think you deal with that quite well in the book that we can't just um, rationalize everything. Um, you know, we, we don't invite people into a kind of a, a, a rational thing right ultimately it's not right. irrational but it's not just some kind of logical you know sure argument that, that, that well, people it's, accept yeah it's uh i talk about a little bit in in the parables chapter in the discipleship chapter the concept of like this we are what we love kind of idea right the the at some level we get changed not just by cognitive information but by, but by our affections, that's actually the most powerful thing about us, right? Is the decisions we make in life are driven not by what's always true, but what glitters, what mm. feels good. The, you know, and I talk about the, the concept, like the mall doesn't try to get you by your logic. It gets you by your gut, your, your, yeah. your feelings, right? And so Christianity needs to be able to, and it does, of course, appeal and fulfill that part of ourselves too, where it at the end of the day is about our joy. You know, Jesus is saying, I have a plan of how to make true joy in your life, not just for 80 years, but 80 billion. And the question is, are you willing to, uh, during your 80, go, I'm not just a thinking creature. I make decisions. Look, I do a lot of, I've been a pastor for 20 years. Uh, and, uh, believe it or not, you know, looking at me, um, and when I do marriage counseling, I will sit with a couple and I'll do premarital counseling with them. And they will say, you know, and I'll be like, guys, this is a, you guys are not a good fit. And, you know, and she'll leave the room and I'll be like, dude, you know, you have nothing in common. You've ever, and the guy goes, yeah, but she's hot. (laughs) And these people get married, Justin. And the reason is because their brain is gone and their whole life is driven as we all are by our gut, by our, mm-hmm. you know, affection. Whatever. So anyway, all that to say, the great thing about Christianity is it's the fulfillment of our gut too. It's yeah. a fulfillment of that mysterious yeah. part of ourselves. That's constantly mm-hmm. looking for that, that meaning. And in the parables chapter, I talk about that a lot about, you know, the reason Jesus, uh, one of the big things Jesus did, he was known, James Dunn talks about this as a parabolist from a historical standpoint, what did Jesus do? He told stories all the time. Well, if all he's trying to do is appeal to our reason, just go <clears throat> forget, you know, when you, when you go up the sermon on the Mount, just spend the weekend, write a systematic, walk it down to us, hand it to yeah. us and go, this is what you're supposed to believe. Your ministry yeah. will be done in yeah. two hours, yeah. you know? Um, but he doesn't do that. Mm. He, he tells stories about, Mm. birds and seed and brothers that you know hate their dad and it's like why is he doing all this because he's trying to reframe not just our thinking but our feeling and the way we live our life and the whole thing and um of course the paradigm for christianity and the gospels is discipleship of jesus as like your lord and teacher and so christianity gets pitched as not this thing that you can just Hey, you have a different theology than your neighbor, but you still watch Netflix, spend your money and do your sex life exactly the same as everybody else around you. It's like, that's not Christianity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In the New Testament, you know? So anyway, so I think we need that kind of like, okay, where does the mystery fit in? The mystery fits in. Now I start following Jesus and he doesn't, he's not physically here. So he's speaking to me through his words and he's speaking through me through his spirit. And he's, you know, the church and all of these mm. great things. But in the end, you're right. There is a gap. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think part of that gap, the brilliance of it is it keeps the heart trending. 
Yeah. And, and, and it, it keeps the heart grasping at just that thing. It's just on the edge. You can't mm-hmm. quite, you know, mm-hmm. and if it was like boop, complete here, done, it'd be like, yeah. okay, I'm yeah. done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's been so good chatting with you, Mark. Thank you for the time. Um, Thank you for having me, sir. Appreciate no, it. Uh, delightful. I hope to bring you on unbelievable, maybe for a, for a full discussion with a skeptic at some point. That sure, would yeah, be yeah. interesting <laughs> to, to do. But um, for now, um, this fun. has been a great introduction to the book. Yes. It's called The Problem of Jesus, Answering Skeptics' Challenges to the Person of Christ. And um, we'll make sure there's a link from today's show so you can you can get hold of it for yourself. Um, all the best as you return to your your pastoring, your virtual Thank congregation you, at the moment. Yeah, that's right. Mark, yeah. um, Thank you so you. much. Appreciate yeah. it. Great to catch up with you. And we'll see you soon. And if you want to catch this show again, do check it out on podcast, premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. And don't forget to get yourself a free sample copy of Premier Christianity magazine and free sample available, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample we'll be back next week with another guest talking about their ministry life faith and walk of witness for now thank you very much for being with us and we'll see you next time